0: This show is brought to you by M.M. Le Fleur, which Mm -hmm. is a women's clothing brand uh, that has a pretty unique way of approaching work style. Uh, Their saying is they want to take the work out of dressing for work. Hmm. And what they do is offer incredibly uh, stylish and classic and simple uh, clothes picked out for you by a personal stylist. They call it a bento box. You answer a few questions online. Uh, then the personal stylist kind of does an analysis of your style and picks something out. And I want to say, since I left Washington, I got rid of almost all of my blazers, (laughs) uh, almost all of my high heels. Um, most of, in every single suit that I own, except one, I have one suit. So I don't have very much like in the way of like work, work clothes, which I am occasionally called upon to dress like a normal human. And I, I actually have used M.M. Lafleur because it is ideal for the kind of situation that you find yourself uh, in that you have to travel and you have to do a bunch of things in one day uh, and you want to have something that you can maybe throw in the washer. Everything they they offer is machine washable.
1: Oh, that's cool. It you is. know, I've often thought on a, hey, it's love it here. I'm here for the ads. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often said that like women have to wear more uncomfortable clothes, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that's like, it seems like that's pretty true about the shoes.
0: Mm, definitely.
1: It's like you guys get, you guys get really a bum deal on the shoe situation, uh, which I, you know, I don't, I don't know how you stand for it, but, uh, but you do get more very variation in clothes and especially during the seasons. Like when I was in DC, like men have to wear men on the Hill, you know, wear suits every day and they do that spring, winter, fall, summer, you know, you'll see a seersucker or something or a tan suit, but it's still a suit. And like, I've often thought like, man, you can wear comfortable things. Uh, if you wear traditionally, you know, women's clothes during the summer. And I often thought that like it feels like such a big choice to do that if you're a guy, but it's unfair. That's all it I It is to say like about I mean it,
0: what really is great about MM LeFleur is that it is a kind of uniform like a suit. It can be super stylish, but it's also you don't have to think too hard about it. It just looks good. And that's, that's what I've cool. always been jealous of, of as far as like men's suits go, right? Like you can kind of add your personal details to it, but you don't have to obsess about it. Like there's a thing you can wear, you know, it's going to work.
1: That's true. That's true. That's why every guy in DC open their closet and it's like, uh, you know. Well, not the gay guys, but the, you know, the, the Fabros and the Vitors, which is a bunch of uh, just a bunch of slacks and and, and various kinds of blue collared shirts. Right. Yeah, and that's about I, right. I believe there is a John's certain back. boss of
0: you guys that limited his wardrobe so he wouldn't um, suffer decision fatigue.
1: I believe in the decision fatigue problem, which is why I'm glad that you're endorsing this product. Yeah.
0: Um, I should say just uh, the Bento box is free. Sign on uh, to mmbento.com. That's mmbento.com. A free service. The stylist will pick stuff out for you. It's not subscription-based, so you don't have to worry about getting something that you didn't ask for three months from now. And I think folks will like it. It's good stuff. People will like it. Hi, I'm Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show about messy coalitions, the possibilities of friendships and the limits of politics. Uh, We have a great show for you today. One of my favorite people in the world, Parker Malloy, who is famous on Twitter, is going to be on to talk about Trump's transgender ban, which is recently reanimated. And we're going to answer a reader question, a rather naughty one, which I am spelling K-N-O-T-T-Y because it is a troublesome and problematic question. But... You guys should also be sending in your naughty questions, Um, you know, the sexy time ones, because we are going to be doing an adult sex ed hour with a former guest who is a comprehensive sex education teacher. So questions that you were too afraid to ask in high school that you might still have, you should send those in uh, to with friends like pod at Gmail. And please just send in any questions you might have that you want us to take on the air. Let us know if we can use your name and also include your phone number if you actually want to call in to the show. Other housekeeping items. New merch uh, on the Crooked Media website is going to be coming very soon, including a I am fine in Trump adjusted terms T-shirt, which I am personally very excited about. Uh, And also, if you are interested in seeing this show live and you happen to be in the vicinity of Austin, Texas, and who wouldn't want to be in the vicinity of Austin, Texas? It is my favorite city in the world. I am doing a live show there on September 23rd. Happens to be my birthday. It is also the Texas Tribune Festival, which is this really cool event they've been doing for a few years now. It's basically for politics nerds around the country with some focus on Texas. They have a whole podcast track that includes recordings of uh, Recode, Decode and On the Media, as well as Black on the Air, which is Larry Wilmore's show of the Dearly Departed uh, nightly show. You should come. Uh, you can go to Texas slash festival for tickets to that. And first up, I'm going to be talking to Jack Jenkins. He is a religion correspondent for Think Progress, and he's been doing a series of articles on the history of Christian nationalism, I think is particularly relevant at this point in time. So stay tuned for the whole show. Parker Malloy at the end, and Jack Jenkins coming up. Welcome, Jack Jenkins, senior religion reporter at Think Progress.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I've wanted to talk to you for a while, and this series that you're doing is giving me a great excuse. Uh, you've been writing about Christian nationalism and Trump. Yes, a rich vein to mine, it turns out. <laughs> uh, and I There's thought, a of, lot. Uh, yeah, I thought of you for this week because you know a lot of people have been wondering in the uh, wake of Trump's many egregiously loathsome behaviors um most very recently um that gosh he did speak this week in arizona in a way that wasn't particularly christian but that's not what people are talking about people have time been talking about charlottesville and and the hatred that he condoned there and how odd it is that his business councils evaporated but his evangelical you know leadership circle or whatever it's called they're right there oh wait 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 take that back there's the exception that proves the rule um one pastor stepped down that's correct A. R. Bernard. yes right. but other than that um his his uh evangelical base in terms of you know polling uh, and also these actual leaders have stayed really strong and he can't seem to shake them and and you feel like it's this connection to Christian nationalism which might help explain why that seems so unshakable.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's There are a lot of different reasons, but I am of the persuasion that Christian nationalism is a key component particularly in, in helping understand why – His cadre of evangelical advisors have refused to jump ship. It it, it is part and parcel um, of the rhetoric they use to defend him and the explanations they give um, for why, you know, they they continue to support him.
0: So let's first, let's look at the history of Christian nationalism. It sounds like some other kinds of nationalism that we could name. Uh, And there is this weird, like we should, I guess, with any discussion of Trump, you have to foreground we're not saying he's hitler but um we reached that stage in american history where it's important to discount that you're not actually comparing people to hitler um but it it it's not directly related well actually i was going to say it's not directly related to white nationalism but there is some overlap but but that's not the history of it Mm -hmm. um let's let's get a little bit into the history of christian nationalism on its own and then maybe figure out how it ties in with trump
2: Right. So, uh, American Christian nationalism is as old as America and even older. Um, Historians kind of point to some really early revolutionaries, one of the first groups to protest Um, for American independence were the people calling themselves the Connecticut Wits. And they were these really bad poets that um, actually called for what we might describe as a theocracy. It was an explicitly religious vision of America, um, although interestingly, you know, vehemently (laughs) anti-racist religious vision for America. Um, But it it was explicit Christian nationalism. Um, you know, wanting to create a nation state that was bound by God. Now, those folks did not win out. They were, um, you know, the, their worldview ultimately fell to the side and our nation, you know, the, well, the people we call the founding fathers were the ones who ended up setting up our political structures, which, you know, called for separation of church and state. Um, while, you know, almost all of them claimed some version of a Christian identity, you know, it wasn't calling for a theocracy. But As America continued to age, Christian nationalism didn't really go away. It manifested in different um, worldviews and mindsets. And as they continued to debate each other, one thing that uh, started to emerge is something that some scholars refer to as civil religion, others refer to as Christian nationalism. And that's kind of like the floor. It's kind of like the base level of Christian nationalism that isn't really tied to one party. Um, one uh, scholar I spoke with, Sam Hansby, he said that you know there are three different you know uh, markers of this ideology. One is that you know we um, we tend to kind of deem the, both the founding fathers and the founding documents as sacred. Right. Uh, we you know, often refer to them as, you know, in these sort of you know, grandiose terms, and that's not something that's exclusive to one party or another. You also see this consistent narrative for whoever leads a social movement to kind of claim that they're returning to the, the origin of America. Um, you know, this idea that you know, they're tapping into what the founders really, really believed, and we've diverted from it. And then the third aspect is just that we talk about God a lot in, in political circles, and that is also not a... Thing that the um, the conservative wing of American politics owns. You see God talk in both um, uh, the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party. I mean, arguably the Democratic National Convention last year was more or overtly religious than the Republican National Convention.
0: Yeah, it was more but, overtly religious and also more overtly patriotic.
2: Yes, yes. Uh,
0: and I want to point out because I think this is this is something you pointed out in your articles, and I think important for our American audience to understand is that this civic religion um, idea, the way that we talk about founding fathers and founding documents and the way that we do use a lot of explicitly Christian uh, terminology, phraseology in our public discussions about politics is is a little weird uh, on a global scale. Right. Like it's not something that other industrialized, you know, modernized nations do a lot of. Like you don't right. find this fetishization of the of the one's one's founding, especially for such a young country. It does seem a little odd. Right. <laughs> like yeah. Other it, countries something... have much longer histories and they don't talk about their, you know, founding uh, cohort the same way that we do. Yeah, it's, it's pretty
2: unique to us um, we, in terms of Western uh, industrialized nations. It is it is a it is a unique aspect of American culture. And some argue that it's kind of tied to the Protestant Christianity that helped you know, found our nation, this idea that, you know, scripture and writing is very important. And so our conversations about what is or is not constitutional tend to sound a lot like um, scriptural arguments Mm -hmm. um, and and theological debates, but it it isn't something unusual for us. But again, this is just kind of the base, um, you know, the most basic level of Christian nationalism. Over time, it took over new... Um, iterations. It it became more extreme among different groups. Um, And so, you know, you you can fast forward to, you know, in the 2000s when, you know, more modern Christian nationalists emerge. but um, you know, one of the most interesting and scary historical examples of Christian nationalism um, is actually abroad. And that is both, you know, in, in parts of Europe but more specifically in Nazi Germany during the 1930s. And that's the one that a lot of scholars point to as one of the Um, the darkest iterations of this ideology um, that that traditionally has has been something that Americans have not mimicked. Um, But that was when, you know, there were a lot of Christians that were deeply involved in the rise of Nazi Germany. And um, what you see in those uh, Christian circles, you know, we talk a lot about the Dietrich Bonhoeffers, you know, the, the pastor who helped resist Adolf Hitler. But you saw a lot of Christians actually, you know, support um, Adolf Hitler and his rise. You know, one of the things, in addition to, um, you know, the, the economic problems that Germany had in the 1930s, and in addition to their, um, you know, humiliation after World War I, they had this deep antipathy towards changing cultural norms. The fact that women were in the workplace, the fact that we had, um, they had different cultural shifts around, uh, you know, what what women could say and what. Um, you know, people could do publicly. Their version of Hollywood was deeply offensive to more traditional Germans, and so one of the things that the Nazi Party kind of ran on was a return to traditional values and that resonated with a lot of German Christian leaders and by the time that um, uh, Adolf Hitler was truly rising in Nazi Germany, scholars tell me they, um, they were making excuses for him. There was this myth that they told that he would walk around with a New Testament in his pocket, which was completely false, but he didn't do a lot of work to dispel it and they would actively you know, push this narrative. They also compared him to Martin Luther, you know, the founder of you know, Protestant Christianity who's an even bigger um, figure in Germany. And they would say, you know, the same way that modern, uh, Martin Luther came to save Nazi Germany, so too has Adolf Hitler come to save Germany as a country. And so this explicit conflation of a nationalism, Christianity, and, and this is the, the, the key part, a, a specific leader. You know, attaching this ideology to a leader and that leader's party is something that can get really dark.
0: And I want to jump in just to point out that what I think is really an important, you know, historical echo here. i It's so strange we have to keep saying, like, we're not saying they're Nazis. But um, <laughs> is this idea that, that uh, there was some uh, German Christians after World War I who were deeply upset about the vulgar, what they perceived as like, Um, a vulgar popular culture uh, and the disintegration of norms. And I'm marking that because when I talk to social conservatives these days, that is what I hear a lot about when they talk about why they're supporting Trump over and over again. I'm sure you hear the same thing is that they feel like they are being oppressed, that they are, that their values aren't under assault that. And, and it, If you point out to them that Trump represents those fallen values, that they, la, 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 can't hear you a little bit. Um, Although it's more complicated than that, and we'll get into that. But the thing I hear over and over and over isn't even so much abortion. It is, um, you're going to make me get gay married, basically. Right. Um, And that was what was sort of happening for these German Christians during Hitler's rise. Is and, it-
2: and to your point, I mean, I'm I'm equally reticent to try to make any sort of explicit comparisons between Nazi Germany and America today. But when I called a Holocaust scholar, someone who was an expert in kind of the, the Christian church's complicity in the Holocaust, um, Robert Erickson, I was saying, you know, I don't want to make any explicit comparisons. Have you? And he, he, he sent me an email saying he'd already written this comparison. Last year, during the campaign, he had seen parallels between the German Christians that had supported. Adolf Hitler and the kind of fervency for Donald Trump that you found among evangelical um, Christians in the United States. Not that they're the same thing, but the idea that you make excuses for a leader who might not otherwise represent your ideals. This was something that scholars were already taking notice of last year. So, you know, we, we would do well to not try to make explicit comparisons, but at the same time, historical patterns are important and important to recognize. Okay. So, you know, this is something that uh, I, I I just was following because I was interested in, but you're already finding a deep level of interest within scholastic communities.
0: And I think this is where we want to get into how it is that his evangelical council has not forsaken him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for some people outside, you know, social conservative circles, there's a, a top level of dissonance, which is that he is one of the most vulgar presidents. We have, is the I would say, I don't know. I don't, Andrew Jackson's pretty vulgar. He... <laughs> Um, one of the most vulgar presidents we've ever had, um, personally uh, involved in all kinds of behavior that social conservatives explicitly denounce, right? Um, from uh, ad- adultery to gambling um to avarice. I mean, we could go down Seven Deadlies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we mm-hmm. would find some some sloth, I think, is even in there, right? Uh he's 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 got him covered. Uh, and so for I think people outside of evangelical or religious circles, they're like, how can you support this guy? But what you've written about is that his his very fallen nature seems to be a feature, not a bug for some evangelicals who are trying to do this this reading of history or this reading of our, our current moment, right? Right.
2: Um, something that has emerged as a narrative within uh, evangelical supporters of Trump is this idea that um, the lack of knowledge that he has is in some ways evidence of a certain kind of anointing by God. So one aspect that you're hearing a lot in evangelical circles, Robert Jeffress has been saying this, um, particularly Paula White, said this just this week, um, one of, uh, a prosperity gospel preacher who's you know, one of Trump's most trusted spiritual confidants is the idea that, one, uh, God lifts up specific leaders into power. And two, that the fact that Trump is someone who is in many ways reprehensible to, um, you know, evangelical values in terms of how you carry yourself is similar to biblical precedent, is what they argue. So um, Old Testament kings like David and Cyrus, folks whose morals were, uh, you know, dubious at best, were still used by God. And so from their perspective, you know, someone like Trump could easily fall into that category. Now, you might say, well, that could be applied to anyone, but they're willing to apply it specifically to Trump. And I think part of that is because, you know, what they'll say in their next breath and what Paula White said in her next breath was that, you know, this presidency guarantees them um, you know conservative judges on the Supreme Court and in the lower courts. And as long as Trump is willing to supply that, then he can be an instrument of God. And that is a theology that they're overlaying onto him. Now, it's not really consistent. It doesn't seem that they applied the same logic to Barack Obama when he was president of the United States. I and mean, Robert Jefferson said that he was paving the way for the Antichrist. Um, But this is still the theology that they're running with right now. And it's why they would be hesitant to abandon them, abandon Trump, because from their perspective, you know, he is an instrument of God.
0: In some ways, I mean, they've created their um, perfect, you know, theological echo chamber, right? Um, Like epistemological closure, which is that the more he misbehaves, the more he seems to, in their way that they've set it up, the way they've set up their their argument, he proves that he is an instrument of God. The more he shows that he himself is ignorant of God, the more he shows that he himself is fallen, the more proof they have that this must be God acting. Right? Like that's the that's the argument is that he could he's he's fighting for us. And he would not have chosen to do that on his own because he's such a, you know, biblical dunderhead. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh yeah and it, it even goes deeper than that. I mean yeah. one of the things Paula White said in this big interview this week was um one of the one of the things you can see as evidence of his anointing is that he surrounds himself with Christians, mm. right? So and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if if people who were his evangelical advisors never leave his side But then the evidence for his anointing is the fact that he always has evangelical advisors surrounding him and promoting him. It it, it never breaks. Like you said, it's a a theological echo chamber that never has to fall in on itself because it it perpetuates itself.
0: As long as he's giving them the judges that they want, as long as he's denouncing the things they want him to denounce, his personal behavior isn't a material issue for them. And his personal ignorance of the gospel isn't an issue for them. He's shown like so – like he's zero – he has zero curiosity about anything in the world. <laughs> but there's something especially comical about his lack of curiosity f- about God. <laughs>
2: like, right. Right. It's just right. – And and it's – I mean it, it's it's one of those things where, I mean when he reportedly like spoke to two Presbyterian ministers. He, he says he's Presbyterian. When he spoke with two Presbyterian ministers in his office, he seemed confused as to what – Religion they belong to, and whether they were evangelicals or not, um, or Christians and so, he, or not,
0: didn't he like say something about like are, are like evangelicals Christian? I mean, I don't want to.
2: Yeah. He seemed confused about that. Yeah. He, he, it's at different times to see confused as to where Mormons fall on the theological spectrum. Um, well, like there's he, a
0: lot of people there.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. But he was Arguably speaking evangelicals evangelical are and... also
0: confused about where Mormons fall. <laughs> fair,
2: fair.
0: I love my Mormons uh, bro- brothers and sisters. I'm saying, kind bars.
1: Kind bars. Yes.
0: Did you guys get your free samples of Kind bars?
1: You know what? I don't care if they're free or not. Our office is chockablock in Kind bars, and I I eat them like Kind bars. I mean, I just eat them all the time.
0: Well, do you have a favorite?
1: Um, I like a dark chocolate plus a nut. So I don't care if it's almond. I don't care if it's peanut butter. I just like a dark chocolate plus some kind of a nut or legume.
0: Yes, I I, what (laughs) they do very well with Kind is balance the salty and the sweet. They do. You know, they do some some bars i think go too sweet. My favorite bar is actually one of the pressed fruit bars that has jalapeno in it, which i know sounds really weird. It's like no, it's no. like kale, pineapple and jalapeno,
1: which That feels like um a very complex flavor. Uh, and i go more for the brute force of chocolate and nuts.
0: Yes. Well, you know, that's in what is your hallmark but brute force really. So <laughs> i i think that works out. And Kind is offering free sample boxes not to just podcasters. But actual, like, humans out there can get a free sample box of 10 different kinds of Kind Bars, including... You're stupid
1: if you don't do this. What? That's the, It's stupid to not do it this. Is. If, it I is, didn't actually. Know. I didn't know how good this offer was.
0: Well, you have to pay shipping.
1: Oh. Well, it's still great.
0: It is pretty great. You get 10 Kind Bars, including this pineapple, kale, jalapeno one, which I have actually not seen in the wild. The first time I saw it was in the box. <laughs> uh, so you go to KindSnacks.com slash friends... This is sincerely like the fuel that I use all the time.
2: Um, Kindsnacks.com slash friends.
0: That's right. That's it.
2: I will say another important component of this, and one of the things that may shore this up is, you know, we were talking before about the historical origins of Christian nationalism. The more contemporary iteration of Christian nationalism and the one that you're really seeing preached by a lot of um, the folks that surround Trump kind of emerged around the Bush era. And these were groups of people who kind of created their own Christian universe, as it were. These were folks who were, um, they created their own homeschooling, Systems where they have books that, you know, insist that the earth is only a certain age. They insist that, you know, America was founded as a Christian nation. Now, and these are all textbooks that their children read. They, the textbooks all cite each other, by the way. Yeah. But it, it is, they, they create this universe. And then some of them ascribe to an ideology that is often described as um, dominionism, the idea that, you know, humans are supposed to have dominion over the earth and they extend that to the political sphere. And so it's the idea that, that Christians have not just, you know, an obligation, but, you know, a, a, a deep spiritual need and charge to take over um, the American government and all governments, that that's, that's a part and parcel of who they should be as Christians. And so when you find someone like Donald Trump who lands into that framework, And um, and they land he lands into this group that a lot of these evangelical leaders weren't rock stars. They were what, you know, uh, Jeff Charlotte, another journalist who covered a lot of this, referred to as B and C listers um, within the evangelical world. You know, they, they kind of forged this weird alliance that has now turned into what we see today, which is that they're the ones who are sticking by him. And when Trump has one of the worst weeks of his presidency last week, the folk, the person they send out to advocate for him on the weekend news shows is Jerry Falwell Jr., who's been one of his staunchest advocates and who also articulates a lot of Christian nationalist ideals. So like you said, it, it, it kind of emerged out of itself. They took old school Christian nationalism to a very different level, and, and it's part of what is propping up Trump.
0: And We've been talking about the leadership here. I know it's harder to report on the flock, Mm -hmm. but I would like to discuss that at least a little bit, which is his leadership is sticking with him. The evangelical leadership is sticking with him. Are there divisions among evangelicals themselves, the actual churchgoers? Because one of the most fascinating, you know, poll findings of of the entire election for me, and I think you and I have discussed it just between ourselves – was that although evangelical self-described evangelicals, largely went for Trump, uh, people who were churchgoers mm-hmm. did not necessarily. Like people who actually um, fulfilled the actions of someone who we would think of as being evangelical were less supportive of him.
2: Right. That was, that was certainly true early on during the primaries. His initial evangelical support did not come from you know fervent churchgoers right. ch- churchgoers in the evangelical realm but the, the the interesting thing is he's he's gotten it back oh. um, by election day and then especially post election day even church going evangelicals are included in the percentage that that holds firm for him, hmm. um, Now, are there divisions? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of his staunchest opponents and most vocal opponents um, on the right was Russell Moore, who runs the political arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's been quieter since Trump was elected, but he was a passionate um, opposer of Trumps throughout the campaign, and so you do see some splintering within evangelical circles of folks who, you know, often tend to be more closely aligned to uh, institutions like um, Wheaton College um, or or the Southern Baptist Convention, things like that. More more quote unquote institutional conservatives tend to 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 not be as sold on Trump. But there does seem to be a solidifying of support even among those evangelicals who, you know, quote unquote, held their nose when they supported Trump. I've spoken to a few of them, you know, um, evangelicals in, in South Carolina and other places where they don't 100 percent like Trump, but they do 100 percent like that Neil Gorsuch is a Supreme Court justice. And they do 100 percent like that they're probably going to get more conservative judges in the lower courts as well. So, and, and actually, to your point, Paula White specifically addressed that in her um, speech this week, and other evangelical leaders have done that too, where they say, you know, even if you don't like him, pray for him, and then leads into a conversation about judges. So it, it, it does seem to me in conversations I've had with you know, everyday evangelicals that even if they think Trump himself is repugnant, they, they, do, they are willing to make an exception as long as, one, they get the judges they want, and two, and this comes up a lot, as long as Mike Pence is also still in the picture. Right. Um, you, you often hear evangelicals say, well, you know, I'm not really sure about what Trump said, but have you, have you heard about how great Mike Pence is and how godly of a man Mike Pence is? You, know, you, you hear that a lot. Um, and so they, it's it's left unsaid, but the sense I get is often it's like, well, if Trump goes down in flames, we still get Mike Pence. And um, from an evangelical Christian perspective, he's far more in line with the traditional image of a uh, conservative right-wing um, evangelical Christian leader.
0: Although you pointed this out in one of your articles, and I, I feel compelled to point it now, which is that. Pence himself was a B and C lister too, right <laughs> Like he was not right. considered like a rising star, was not did not have a very much of a national reputation except insofar as he was mocked and ridiculed by people. um
3: right. and he was kind right. of
0: failed talk show host, radio talk show host. Uh, but he's been he's been lifted up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his he's incredible, I mean, he is very far-right evangelical conservative. I mean, I think sometimes mm-hmm. we sort of lose sight of that. Like, he's not in the mainstream of—I mean, he's more like a—he's a, he's a Freedom Caucus guy, right? Not a Senate Republican.
2: Right, and he's—I mean—he used to describe himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf. But you know, the key part of that is that he was still comparing himself to Rush Limbaugh. I mean, his views, a lot of the stuff he articulated when he was in in Indiana, are are far more right wing than you know you would you would think, given the kind of the tame way that he describes himself. And and also, I mean, the thing about Mike Pence is he in Indiana, the form of religion, the, the, the version of religious liberty that he articulated in Indiana um, during that huge fight over, you know, a religious liberty bill that would lead to the discrimination of LGBT people. I mean, that that version was was there were other people who were who were articulating it and trying to pass laws on it. But he became the figurehead for it. Mm. And now, you know he's. He's second in command. He's, he's, he's the vice president. And were he to become president, that's the version of religious liberty he's going to articulate. And it's one that has been vehemently opposed by even people of faith <laughs> because it could be discriminatory against other people of faith. Um, but but that is kind of what he has in his cachet. That's, that's a belief system that he has supported and articulated for decades.
0: I still come down on the side. If you if you put a gun to my head, which more and more these days it does feel like there is a gun to my head, um, that President Pence is marginally better, um, <laughs> but still quite terrifying. Um, well,
2: he was moved. That's the one thing that people have noted is that when when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, the outcry and yeah. the protests did did move the needle a little bit there, well, which is more has... than can be said for 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 a lot of things with Trump.
0: Right. Well, I mean, the thing that the argument that I usually make about Pence is that you can make deals with someone who has actual goals and um, a sense of purpose or duty beyond his immediate self-enrichment, right? Like, right. if someone has some kind of thing that they want, you can you can make a deal with them. <laughs>
2: like, right. I mean, and <laughs> Pence plays the game. Like, he's a politician. He's right. still a politician at the end of the exactly. day. Exactly. And, and, and that's a thing that you can you can deal with in our framework. I mean, Trump breaks so many of our frameworks because it's not clear what his true agenda is and whether or not he'll stick to it if he has one.
0: Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, he's completely unpredictable and completely self-involved. So you can't you can't know what he wants or know what he wants to do. So therefore you can't make a deal with him. and He's terrifying. OK, anyway, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else we should touch on. this this covers it. I mean, I guess I I as you were talking about the. You know, the flock of evangelicals, as you were talking about, just churchgoers and and self identified evangelicals, and how they're consolidating under Trump. I did have a thought, <laughs> which is this is making me just terribly sad. Um, mm. I had a really great conversation um, uh, with Evan McMullen before the election, mm. uh, LDS. A uh, man uh, who identifies as Christian. I, I think that's the case. Um, and we were talking about where resistance to Trump comes from. And he placed it in his belief in God, but also just in things greater than himself, right? Mm. That his feeling of resistance to Trump comes from when you believe there are things that are more important than you, more important than America, more important, you know, than this moment, right? Hmm. Like that is where you find the sustenance to resist something that's chaotic, something that's maybe um, superficially enticing because of the excitement, because of the enrichment, whatever. Um, because you have your your eyes and your heart set upon something bigger, and I've taken a lot of comfort in that idea when I think about the nation's Christians and other people of faith and whether or not we will be able to come together um, if things get even worse. Uh, things are pretty bad right now. Hmm. But what you're telling me really makes me think, oh, <laughs> um, Maybe that's that maybe that's an illusion of mine.
2: Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an illusion. I, I don't I think there's something to that. I think there is one of the things about institutional norms that Trump and Trumpism shakes is that institutions are shored up by a by a coalition. I mean, they're they, they're supported by a broad swath of people because we got to figure out a way to all live together. And um but the, the problem is when individual parts of that coalition become insular, um, that, that means that they can be out for themselves. And not all evangelicals support Christian nationalism. In fact, Christian nationalism is really only a small subset of, of white evangelical Christianity. Um, and it's not just white evangelicals. It's spread throughout different forms of evangelicalism. But when you articulate a message that says the most important thing, is your vision of Christianity. And your your core driving idea is to actualize that version of Christianity in positions of power over and against everyone else. And when you demonize, quite literally, any sort of opposition to that, um, you know, it, it, it is... You lose that sense... The, the sense of having a belief in something bigger than yourself evaporates because the thing that's bigger than yourself is a god that shores up your belief and specifically only your worldview. Um, and that is that is a, a difficult thing to combat politically and theologically. Um, and, and, and so when you see, this is why historians get scared um, when they see the people in politics, whether they're Christian nationalists or any other kind of um, you know, ideology that becomes self-involved. Whenever they see that land in our political structure, it, it it sends off alarm bells. So I'm I'm not disagreeing with you. I do think that having a a vision of something greater than yourself is important. I'm just saying, um, when when something greater than you is that you are 100 right, right. <laughs> um, that can be that can be dangerous.
0: Well, it's funny because I actually I would say that that's the difference between um a kind of faith that gives you the ability to resist authoritarianism mm. and a kind of faith that holds up authoritarianism is that the faith mm. that holds up authoritarianism is small. That's a small mm-hmm. vision of God, you know, Like you are making you are making whatever it is that you believe smaller when you say that it just supports what you have to say, right? Like what I found so powerful about Evan McMullen's um, way of thinking about things was that it was an expansive view of faith, right? Like he was not limiting it to LDS tradition or Christian tradition. Or, you know, you know, monotheism. It was when you believe in these big things, you know, that are a vision of a better and more just world. Like, that is how you gain the resilience to fight things that are keeping people down. It's because you can believe in this thing that's bigger, that will give you strength, that will pull us all forward. Um. That the kind of faith that these Christian nationalists are talking about, and that I do think is kind of filtered out to a lot of evangelical tradition that don't isn't explicitly nationalist. It's a smaller kind of faith, I feel like. Mm. You know, like it's a smaller vision of God.
2: Well, I, I will say I, one of the interesting things about this, and that you brought up Mcmullen, um, is that to your point. Um, I mean, technically, the LDS church and Mormonism is explicitly Christian nationalist. I mean, they do believe that the founding documents are explicitly sacred. Um, And yet you see arguably more overt resistance to Trumpism within LDS circles than you do in many white evangelical circles. And I think there's a myriad of different reasons for that. And you need to talk to an expert on Mormon history to really get a full understanding of that. But I think part of it is the Mormon experience is rooted in the idea of, of America—what it means to be American is to live outside of yourself. Like, to both, you can both support your own thing, and, and the LDS Church has done a really great job of trying to protect their own, so I'm not trying to, like, um, uh, laud the LDS Church's you know, political views on all things. But I will say that that does seem to be a significant difference between the kind of Christian nationalism that's being articulated— by these white evangelicals and other for- other forms of evangelicalism right now who are circling around Trump. Um, you don't see a lot of LDS leaders as mm-hmm. part of that inner circle, mm-hmm. and that that might be um, you know, an alternative vision, as it were. If you're going to be Christian nationalist, there are different ways of doing it.
0: I guess that's where we're going to have to end. <laughs> 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 uh, it was really good to talk to you. Um, people can look for your series on Christian nationalism and Trump at Think Progress uh thank you so much for joining us
2: thank you so much for having me
0: so you and i don't share a bed Uh, that's true anna (laughs) at least not yet Mm -hmm. uh but
1: (laughs) yeah no i guess no reason to rule it out yeah
0: it might happen someday you know like
1: we're like trump in venezuela
0: (laughs) (laughs) things it's always an option um things might get tight you know at cricket headquarters we might have to like you know double up on rooms but parachute sheets is actually i share a bed with my husband and we got our parachute sheets and he is super picky and he loves these sheets. Um, The only ad that he's actually asked to come on and be, he wanted to personally endorse this product um, was for parachute sheets. Uh, We have the linen ones. I don't know which ones you have. Uh, Favreau
1: raves about the linen ones.
0: They're great. Uh, They're great.
1: (laughs) Only use them. And I keep saying that like, I just, like, I I know I'll just like sleep at the foot of the bed, but they don't let me. That's where Leo sleeps.
0: <laughs> I don't even understand what that joke was. But uh, <laughs> wait, in their bed? You would, yeah, just wouldn't like you?
1: A, it's, a, it's a throuple <laughs> slash. I'm, I'm, you know, that's a, that's a joke there.
0: Oh, boy. It's fine. So anyway, the linen sheets, I guess John could attest, like they do get softer with every wash, which is one of those things like you don't quite believe, but then it does happen.
1: Softer with every wash. Because I was unsure about linen at first, and then as you continue to wash them, just better and better. Again, and also I personally
0: like, and I don't know about you, John, um, I like a neatly made bed, uh, and Mm -hmm. linen does take the pressure off of making it perfect.
1: You know, my friend, uh, my friend, uh, Walker, uh, said this to me, and it really stuck with me, which is if you ba- if you make your bed in the morning, uh, your bed is made your whole life. And if you don't, it's never made.
0: <laughs> make your bed each day as if it's your last. Is that the... <laughs> No, it's more that
1: it's two <laughs> seconds in the morning, and then your bed is always made one hundred percent of the time, right? Except when you are sleeping in it, and that doesn't even make sense. I don't know. There was something about the intuitiveness of it that really stuck with me. It didn't change my behavior. I still, it's a it's
0: well. If people are interested in our ra- after our raves about parachute, it's parachutehome dot slash friends uh, for free shipping and returns. And you guys probably know they use the returns for Habitat for Humanity. So well, that's cool. Not that you'll return them, Great. but if you do, it does go to, to a good cause
1: parachutehome.com slash friends
0: I just wanted to tell you just as an aside like I did mm-hmm. want to pull you in to talk about non-lgbtq stuff because I don't want to just have like you know sure
3: and 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 I totally appreciate that um you know but I don't want to you know, pigeonhole you yeah but sometimes you know sometimes very specific <laughs> LGBT stuff comes <laughs> up and it's like I I I clearly have thoughts on this. You
0: know? <laughs> I know you do, and it would be weird to talk to a non-LGBTQ person about this, right? Like... Yeah, it, you know, uh,
3: yeah, that that would be kind of weird if it was just like, all right. Like, I think most people uh, can uh, can can at least agree on that.
0: But yeah, so Parker Malloy, um, writer at Upworthy, that asshole's at it again, Parker. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, so I'm going to, so my point of view on this, um, I, so when that transgender tweet came a couple weeks ago, that was mm-hmm. horrifying, um, but it did seem to quickly come to light that he had once again misread the world, misread, right. um, especially his generals, as he likes to call them. And lots of people, including some conservative Republicans, Came out and at the, at the very least said, whoa, 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 whoa. mm mm-hmm. um, Right. With other people saying outright, even some Republicans th- don't do this. Uh, and his own military said, we're not going to take this as an order. Right. We're going to wait for this mm-hmm. to go through proper channels. But apparently now it's it's going through proper channels. That
3: seems to be from, from what I understand, from what uh, because here, so the Wall Street Journal uh reported that uh it looks like they the White House is going to release their like the memo that tells <laughs> the Department of Defense to start trying to put this ban into place again um which you know and that should be coming sometime this week, probably by the time that uh people hear this so uh that seems seems to be the case my my kind of hope with uh with that was that he tweeted something completely ridiculous and then forgot about it (laughs) Um, you know or that it was just some posturing or something like that but it, it it seems it seems to actually be a real policy that's being pushed into place and uh you know the this lgbt publication the the washington blade or los angeles blade they're basically the same thing they um you know, they also reported that, you know, they said a White House senior official who spoke on a condition of anonymity uh, said that Pence was the driving force behind the ban. And he's been uh, spearheading the trans ban reinstatement since last May. Oh, my so, God. So what? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of which which is, I mean, kind of when it was uh, when when it was announced that it was going to be pulled back. It yeah. It just doesn't make sense to to tell people who who want to put their lives at risk and lives on the line that they can't serve in the military. And all the reasons that have been put out there, whether it's the, um, you know, Trump saying it's the tremendous costs of of health care for trans people. That's just simply not the case. That's not true. You know, and other people will say, well, um, what about deployment? Trans people can't be sent into combat combat. They absolutely can. And I think that there's this impression that trans people are constantly having all sorts of surgeries, uh, which is weird. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, that is accurate. like that almost um, is
0: funny to me. I mean, it shouldn't be. But like the idea sure. that that would be a life of a trans person would be just constant sure. medication and surgery. That's not yeah. what it's like. I mean, right.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, here, here's the thing. So as a, as a trans woman, I, uh, you know, it's like my day-to-day is like, oh, I have to take uh, hormones. So, you know, these hormones that without insurance would cost only like $57 a month. It's not super expensive. You know, it's not, these aren't like $1,000 pills or anything like that. They're super cheap with insurance cost me $3. Mm -hmm. Um, That's kind of just it. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's really not a big deal. Um, You know, if, if trans people have, uh, you know, and not every person has surgery, but if they have that, you know, the quote unquote the surgery, you know, um, downstairs renovations, uh, <laughs> uh, finishing the basement, what, Plumbing, you know. <laughs> um, I think it's the, uh, you also. know. If, if, they, if they have, uh, it's a gender uh, confirmation surgery. You know, it it might put them out of commission for like six to eight weeks, which is just you know recovering from any sort of surgery can be like that. ACL tear and the takes total longer. cost is something like I looked it up, and it's it's the cost of fixing a compound leg fracture, right? Uh, which I'm sure that happens in the in the military all the time, you know. So the and it's something that people would have once, and that would be it. Mm-hmm. So I don't. There's no logical reasoning behind this. The government commissioned a study uh, on the issue before pulling this back. This has been something that's been years in the making of studying and trying to understand the real world impact that this would have. Um, So we've, so we've got that. And, you know, there's a 112 page, uh, page report that That says that this would not be a big deal, that there's no medical reason that trans people can't serve, which remember that that was the initial reason for the ban in the first place, was that it was a medical issue. And so whether you're talking about this from a cost, from a medical stance or from a readiness stance, there is no excuse to, um, to do this. And when he first tweeted that out, um, I, wrote an, I wrote an article for Upworthy where I interviewed a number of trans people who are in the military, and a lot of them, uh, a lot of them went into into the military uh, bec- because they were uh, lower income or homeless or all of these other factors that exist in society. You know, and you know to then take that away from them, the the one sort of outlet where people. Uh, can have some stability if they need it, which you know. Whatever your thoughts are on the military, it's it's a, uh, it's a ladder. It's a jobs program essentially. It's a ladder, you know, too. for like, for people who are who are in desperate need in a lot of cases. Right. So it's really just so sad and so unfortunate that that we're in this position where we're going to pull back this policy right after p- people who may have been in the military and were closeted. Were encouraged to come out because they were told it was safe. They're now going to be kicked out. So it's 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 like if "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" was was repealed and then they tried to put it back in, and they're like, "Okay, all the people who came out as gay get out of the military." So it's it's no, uh, oh, it's, it's unbelievably cru- cruel. It's cruel. Yeah, it's unbelievably it's
0: cruel. cruel. And we should point out also that um, the Lambda Legal Defense Fund uh, is on this. Um, As I'm sure other human rights organizations are as well. I particularly liked the uh, tweet that they sent yesterday after the breaking news. Trump set to implement transgender military ban. They tweeted out puts on cape made of legal briefs. (laughs) 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 And there are legal arguments that are going to be had over this. And it is also clear that there is a lot of support for keeping the current policy in place, in part because it did take a long time to come up with. The Army does mm-hmm. not like to co- go back on things that it came up with, right? The the military, yeah. not just the Army, the military, once they decide to do something, they really like to keep on doing it. They're the definition of conservative in that sense. Um, yeah. And, and I, I do think this is going to face some problems uh, in the legal arena. But I also know that this is an important issue to talk about, in the context of all the fucking dog whistles that mm-hmm. Trump has sent in his reign of terror in in public, because uh, that's also what this is um, is a, is a message. Oh, absolutely.
3: Um, you know, it's 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 essentially is meant to meant to suggest that trans people aren't um, aren't legitimate, aren't aren't uh, functioning members of society who can contribute things and can, you know, who, who essentially just are, it, it, it paints trans people as freaks, which Mm -hmm. is, which is, you know, it plays to his base and, you know, public policy polling put out, uh, they did a, they recently did a national, uh, survey where they found that something like 62% of Trump supporters, uh, support kicking, kicking all trans people out of the military. Mm. And, you know, if you look at Everyone else, you know, uh, people who voted for Clinton, Stein, Johnson, whatever, none of them are, um, like none of their supporters think that trans people should be kicked out of the military. It's just Trump supporters. So it's, it's a total dog whistle to his base. And that's, uh, I think one thing that's, that's going to get kind of, uh, that's, that's going to be kind of scary as as his administration goes on. When he gets backed into a corner, he makes a big play to his base. You know, mm-hmm. people were, you know, criticizing him over uh, Charlottesville recently, and now we have, uh, you know, this news just sort of leaks out that this is coming this week. So it's it's like all these things are planned, and then he waits for, you know, n- the news cycle to take a dark turn on him, and he and they just drop this other in you know, information out there, which is, uh, it's just so sad. I, I've, I've really honestly never felt, um, is, uh, as just, I guess, unaccepted, you know, in, in society, like since I came out as trans, I, which, you know, it's been, it's been years and it's things that things have not been getting better. Um, you know, as trans visibility went up, I don't know that trans acceptance has necessarily followed suit at that same uh, same rate. You know, now more people know that trans people exist, uh, but they're also very open about hating trans people. Mm-hmm. And now we have the president of the United States uh, pushing stuff like that. And we have Mike Pence behind the scenes pushing stuff like that. And that's what really scares me about the people who uh, who think that if we just impeach Trump, things will be great? No, it puts Pence in charge, and Pence is—he's a smooth politician who will implement uh, these sort of hateful policies, but then you know, cover them in language around uh, readiness and cost, and you know, make it make it sound uh, better politically. And it's hard because a lot of times I'll say stuff to—I'll say, hey, this is um, like last night on 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 Twitter, I I said that this is really uh, harmful and this is bigoted. And this is just, this is horrible. And I had people in my mentions, you know, saying to me, um, saying, stop with this identity politics. And, and it's one of those things where it's just like, how do I defend myself? How do I defend other people like me? Um, you know, if every single time they're going to be like, why are you focused on identity politics instead of things that matter? And it's like, because Trump is making these things that matter, things that are happening in the world, and uh, it's it's just getting it's getting darker and more harmful. And I, uh, you know, I I really don't know how things get better from here. I hope they do, but I don't think I don't see any time in the in the short term things uh, making a turn for the better.
0: I. I'm torn about how to respond because I feel like, as your friend, <laughs> I want to tell you um, that things are going to be okay. But as a political analyst, um, I agree. I, I mean, I can tell you as a friend that I'll be there for you. Sure, and, and, and other I, and people I know, will be too. And I know that I
3: know that the the people who are who are really great allies will continue to be there and continue to use their voice for good. That is not even a question. You know, Uh, that is something that uh, I cherish my like my friends who will go out of their way to stand up for trans people in any given situation, who will just be like, hey, knock it off. That's not cool, because sometimes it's hard constantly having to defend yourself are constantly having to defend other people like you um, where it's good if you've got like a, a friend or an ally to kind of step in every once in a while and, you know, kind of be like, OK, you take a breather. I'm going to I'm going to push back on this whatever horrible thing in the day. But <laughs> a lot of a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues, you know, like you're, you were just, you know, saying Lambda Legal, is, you know, going to fight this in courts uh you know who who is going to be appointing people to courts? Um and you know the Supreme Court is Gorsuch is uh is very, very, very conservative on this issue. Mm -hmm. And he I I don't picture him ever giving this a truly fair, you know, even-handed look. And I imagine that every other person that Trump uh puts on the court you know, however many it is, uh, will kind of look at it the same way, which, which is why I think that, you know, if, if someone honest, if someone really wants to, uh, really wants to help trans people, I think, I think it's important to, to elect a democratic majority in the Senate, uh, in 2018, uh, which I know is, is a very, very difficult path, but, that's the one thing that that will prevent Trump from from putting extremist far right people on the courts for the for decades,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
3: which will have lasting harmful effects. That I think is the most important thing here, mm-hmm. um, in, in my opinion, uh, because there is no check on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's very few Republicans are willing to stand up to him. Uh, on, on these sorts, sorts of issues, you know, and it's great every once in a while to get some good news, like, Oh, three senators voted against a, or three Republican senators voted against a historically unpopular bill. like that. <laughs> it's kind of sad that it's like, Hey, there's this bill with 15% approval and it's going to kill a bunch of people. And it's like, Oh, we were able to peel off three. It's like, that's something where it should have been, you know it should have been a massive majority of people voting against that just because it's it was political suicide to vote for that um but they did because when trump puts things out there they're afraid he'll he's going to tweet about them and you know they're afraid of stuff like that right now so i think it's a you know if if we really care about checks and balances when it comes to the courts uh when it comes to you know congress even you know keeping uh, keeping tabs on, you know, what he's doing. I think it's important to elect a Democratic majority in 2018. That's that's why I, while I think that the talk about impeachment and talk about investigating Trump is, is important and those things should continue, you know, investigations should totally continue. But the focus for the sake of marginalized groups of all sorts, uh, for the sake of voting rights, for the sake of trans people, you know, all of these things... Uh, 2018 has to be a big focus. Yeah.
0: These bras are far more comfortable than doing an ad with guys about bras. That's uncomfortable. And bras are usually uncomfortable, and bra shopping usually sucks. Um, most women have bras that don't fit them because the process of getting fitted for a bra is kind of intrusive, as you might imagine. Uh, and I, you know, I have
1: not imagined.
0: Now you can. <laughs> <laughs> And I think uh, people just don't want to do it. So you kind of get sized once and then you just buy that size. Uh, But Third Love has a fit finder that they figure out what kind of bra works for you, Um, whether it is, you know, a T-shirt bra or a soft cut bra um, or a demi bra. I know this is like probably sounds like a foreign language to you, I guess. Well,
1: it's just like, you know, I'm I'm in a gay couple over here. I mean, I have just like my contact with bras is... So so low. It's like I mean, I just don't think about them. I don't come across them. I just have like even like like you know you know John's got bras in his house, right? I do, I and did. I don't I don't see them, right?
0: <laughs> you literally like don't really know what a bra looks like, probably. Like I mean, I mean from the movies, yeah, from the movies. Uh, well, Third Love has these great bras. Um, they have a bunch of different styles too, and like I said, the demi cup and the t shirt bra, but they also have a halterback bra. Just to get really in the weeds for the ladies or whoever else might be interested in wearing a bra, sure. Um there's a lot of trends right now that you have bra straps showing, um especially kind of like tank backs and 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 spaghetti straps. And the trend is to have your bra be pretty enough that it can show, especially in the back. Really? Yeah. And these fascinating. Race, these racer back bras have like a lace back. So if they peek out from under your shirt or dress, like it looks like intentional and cool.
1: Our society is becoming a burlesque show.
0: I know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Germany after World War I, I tell you. Um, go on the hustings. In more ways than one.
1: Campaign for purity. <laughs>
0: But they have this Fit Finder. They have the, all these really cool options. Uh, they also sell underwear. They also sell bras in half cup sizes, which is a thing I didn't even know existed. Uh, and you may be a half cup size.
1: It's if you have half a boob.
0: I, it's as no. if. That
2: is not what it is.
1: It's, it's as uh-huh. if you
0: have half a boob on top of your boob in a way because you're. All right. it's a half more. And, you know, you're in between sizes.
1: How, and, much, how many, many more words are on that page of yours, you think? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'll get out of this um, fast because I just need to note <laughs> that you can try their bras for free uh, you pay two ninety nine shipping you can have it for 30 days you can wash it you can wear it you can cut out the tags um, you can do whatever it is that you need to do to find out if a bra is comfortable for you uh, thirdlove.com slash friends
1: thirdlove.com slash friends
0: I think this is actually a really good segue to a piece of listener mail uh, that I got that I thought of you as someone who could be helpful in responding. It is uh, from, I won't say who it was from because we, we are in this place where we haven't quite worked out how to give people's permission for sure that they want to use their names, but I'll read it. Hi there. I am a military spouse of a deployed infantryman with a four-year-old son. It is hard to put into words how infuriating the last year has been. I've called my senators, asked my friends to do so, and marched to the Women's March. I want to run for office someday. I want to do the right thing and go to rallies and protests. I want to be as active as possible. But if I'm honest, I am afraid. If I wasn't a mother, I know I wouldn't feel this way. But now that I am, I'm terrified of getting injured or killed for doing what's right. Because then who is there for my son? I imagine the counter-argument is, well, we are afraid too, and we don't have a choice to stay home. What kind of person do you want your son to emulate? What kind of world are you helping to give him? I know there's no excuse for silence, especially as a middle-class white woman who's enjoyed white privilege her entire life. I can't describe the emotional turmoil this has caused me. The pull to answer the call to action at once felt with an equal pull to stay at home, safe with my son, who needs me. Thank you for reading. Wow. Well,
3: I, I mean, I th- I think it's 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 clear that she that, that her heart is clearly in the right place and that she's very that she's thought a lot about this, which is, I mean, half the battle, mm-hmm. um, which there's definitely got to got to be some major credit there.
0: Right. And I think that she's articulated the truth about some people. This is something we talked about on the on the show last week. Some people don't have a choice about being involved in this. Right. Like you. Right. Like this is mm-hmm. this fight is your fight every day of your life, um, right? People like her and me can opt out if we want to, but she also hasn't opted out. Let's make that very clear. Like she's engaged.
3: I mean, she's just being very honest about about her her fears, which having fears is normal and human, and we all have to have to kind of uh, think about how we balance our actions versus our fears and understanding which ones are rational which ones aren't and i mean these are all sadly very rational fears yeah um you know but there are there are a lot of ways she can get involved and still make a physical presence right um that
0: will make a difference you know, so that, that other people yeah. can be present exactly. at these things where we we can agree like the the numbers matter i think you're totally right that that
3: there's no true substitute for a physical presence, but everybody has to make their own decisions on what they're comfortable doing. Um, and there are other things you can do to help yeah. uh, to help in these situations. You know, uh, when these larger these larger scheduled marches, you know, like um, you know, the larger the, the Women's March, the Science March, and all of those. You know, these are planned ahead of time. And one th- one thing you can kind of do is, you know, if if these marches have uh, infrastructure at you know, all, have, you can be yeah, part of that. Have, have organizers and websites like just it's good to check that out and see if like see if there's anything they're asking for. Maybe maybe they someone needs someone to help make signs or drive, uh, you know, drive or donate uh, donate. Money or you know food or stuff like that, like there are there are ways you can you can help that aren't necessarily you know the you know marching
0: right the physical the being things. in the march. Yeah. I do want to say that I do think that's what people also need to look at though, is the physical um, infrastructure of a march, right? Like mm-hmm. we need more marches and rallies and protests and vigils. I, I do believe that. I do think that that is what puts an issue on the map. And what makes it impossible to ignore. So I, I hope that that is something that people take away from this. And this woman who I, I think I want to say also, if you write this kind of letter, you're probably doing a lot, right. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> clearly I mean, she's doing a lot. Yeah. She puts
3: so much thought in, you know, yeah. if, if you've put that much thought into things, uh, you, you, you clearly care, right. which is, I feel like she personally is maybe bad. off the hook yeah. for
0: this, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she, she personally sounds like she's doing a lot, but I highlight her letter because I do think that everyone needs to ask themselves for real, you know, can I do this? Is it possible for me to do this? Um, and if I don't feel safe, why don't I feel safe? And is there something can I, that I can do about that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished uh, reading this amazing essay by Gary Wills in his book about um, the 1968 election about the students mobilization March on Washington, which is like the third largest March on Washington to protest the Vietnam War. And um, he talked about how the students how well planned it was. I think the women's march is similar, but they had this entire infrastructure for the students march. That included uh, training marshals to um, for nonviolence to intercede for and when people got in each other's face, um, you know, they had people handing out water and food. They had people, you know, organizing carpools like that happens for any huge march
3: mm-hmm.
0: and you can be a part of that. Uh, and also, like there are things like vigils, but there are regular there are sometimes regular protests um, and 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 watches that you can go to. And I think those count too. not just the huge marches like anywhere you can be like a huge march might be a target where you don't feel safe. Right. Go to something
3: else. Yeah. And to your point about the importance of being there, I mean, I see a lot of people say things about, well, does does marching and protesting really make a difference? And I think it absolutely does. Uh, You know, just just last weekend, we saw what what happened in uh, in Boston? I mm-hmm. mean, you had this tiny group of you know uh, white supremacists or white nationalists or what whatever they call themselves these days, um, alt right, alt light, whatever. Um, free speech
0: advocates so, is the latest thing, but I don't think spe- they actually yeah. mean that. So,
3: no. yeah, that's that's gotta gotta love the very <laughs> euphemistic, yeah. you know. Things where it's like, oh, if you're counter-protesting me, then clearly you hate free speech. It's like, no, nah, we just don't like racists. Yeah. Um. But the the massive response to that, um, the massive counter-protest, I know, just watching watching that from you know online, you know, is kind of, it, it gives it gives me hope in really dark times sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, where you see that and you're just like. There are so many of us that care about these things. And then you read the news that other marches that were planned, um, other protest, other quote unquote free speech protests mm-hmm. have been canceled or moved online or whatever. And it shows that it works and it's important. And it's not a matter of, you know, one thing I think that a lot of those, you know, uh, the the white nationalist crowd, you know, what they do is they show up with you know with with guns and militias and all that stuff where it's it's meant to it's meant to silence terrorize, and terrorize, terrorize people yeah you know but when you can get a big group of people just to make their presence known and it's not in a uh in a we're going to scare you into silence kind of way but it just we're going to let you know that that this is what we stand for type of way. I think that that is one of the most powerful things you can do in, uh, you know, in in our democracy. You know, it it lets it sends a message to elected officials, to the to your neighbors, to like, let them know what you care about and maybe influence what they care about.
0: And also it reminds people there are more of us than them. There really are. You know, I mean. Their Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. We should never ever, ever, ever forget that. you know, and the people who want to repress the rights of others want to do that because there are more of us than them you know mm-hmm. and and one thing they can never deny is numbers. They can never deny that. That's why Trump is so obsessed with crowd size, yeah. And you the most powerful message you can send him is is making a crowd. So we need to make more crowds. So, Parker, thank you. I think we got to a place that's actually relatively uplifting compared to where (laughs) we started, although let's never let's not forget that people should be engaged on this trans ban, too. Uh, Do you have any recommendations specifically for people who might want to be engaged on this? Besides tagging you out on Twitter, like, hey, Parker, you can take the day off. I got it. Like what (laughs) what else can people do?
3: You know, I I think that there are really the best thing people can do right now is to check out organizations like Lambda Legal or uh, Human Rights Campaign or National Center for Transgender Equality or Outserve is another one, uh, because they're going to have. Some sort of strategy, and they're going to need help that goes beyond just trans people and goes beyond just, you know, the LGBTQ community. It's, we're, this is something that, um, that straight cis people, you know, can, can help out on. And I'm sure that we will need their help. Um, I'm just not sure how that's going to be just yet. (laughs)
0: Well, stay tuned. I'm sure it'll come up. And yeah. one thing that people can do, I just want to remind them that in your everyday conversations, you can speak up for trans people and that counts. That matters. Absolutely. Like if someone says something transphobic to you or or around you, you know, like, don't let it pass. Like that's 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 part of this fight is just to let your acceptance be known. Uh, it's not enough, but it's part of it. And people should 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 know that. So Well, yeah. And,
3: and a lot of a lot of people don't don't necessarily realize that they're that they are that they are saying something that is either based on incorrect information or based on, you know, it's just just ignorance and not malice. And those those types of conversations just, uh, you know, popping in and being like, oh, hey, just FYI, you know, that that thing, that, that meme that you shared isn't based on, you know, is isn't accurate right. trans people aren't actually actually monsters you know what, whatever the case may be <laughs>
0: just, yeah there's read up um, on it be educated um yeah. and you can
3: eat after midnight and don't turn into gremlins
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you so much parker um we uh, thanks will, for having me we'll have you back And that is it for this week's show. You can find in the show notes uh, the Twitter uh, handles for all the guests as well as the show's Twitter handle. And again, the email for the show, which I'll say with friends like Pod at Gmail and also any relevant links, links to Jack's articles and links to articles that Parker has written. And I wanted to thank everyone who's been giving feedback so far. We've gotten a ton of really interesting questions. Again, it would be helpful if you included in your question, if you have one, whether or not we can read it on the air, how to pronounce your name and your phone number if you want to be included in an actual podcast. You guys help. You're a vital part of the show. We could not do it without you. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week.